So Matthew chapter 16 is where we're at. We pick up in verse 21. And Matthew says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to all of his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and, they will re and he will reward each according to his works. But surely I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So if you're visiting us this morning, if you're new to Calvary Chapel, Truckee, we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew. And you know what? I'm very thankful for the Word of God and, and what it has accomplished in my life, what it's accomplished in our life. Uh, I'm thankful that it's living and powerful. And I'm thankful both as your pastor and as an individual believer, how the Word washes over us. As we study it, I'm thankful how it feeds our heart and feeds our souls. And I'm thankful for the ability of God's word to equip us and to bring us perspective in this life. I mean, the Bible is such a wonderful book, isn't it? We want to give the word of God the attention it deserves. We want to give it the attention that it's worthy, that's worthy of the word of God. In Psalm 128, verse 2, we read that God has exalted his word above his name. And so we want, to, we want to give it that exalted place in our hearts and in our lives. We want to reverence it. We want to obey it. We want to apply it to our lives for what it is. And Jesus said that God's word is truth. And this is the reason. These are the reasons that we teach through the Bible at Calvary Chapel Truckee verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the, entire book of, through the entire book of the Bible, every single book, so that we might receive the whole counsel of God, that we might glean from it everything that God has for us. Well, the public ministry of Jesus covered a period of approximately three years. And his three-year ministry breaks down into three roughly one year blocks of time. Uh, the first year is no, uh, of Jesus's ministry is known as the year of obscurity. And it's during this year, uh, Jesus's ministry begins quietly in a northern city called Nazareth. And it grew greater and greater uh, in notoriety as it continued during the course of that year. And then the second year of Jesus's ministry is commonly known as the year of popularity. And it was during this time that Jesus uh, began to be very well known. And all over Israel, just his fame spread all over Israel and into uh, Gentile regions outside of Israel. And then the third and final year of Jesus's ministry is known as the year of opposition. And it was during this year that the Jewish religious leaders openly opposed Jesus and sought an opportunity actually to put him to death. And it's right in the middle of this third year of ministry that the events that we're looking at this morning take place. Okay, the religious leaders of the Jews, they're united together in opposition to Jesus. Usually they were at odds with one another, but they're joining forces to bring an end to Jesus. And they have now for many months actually been contemplating how they might kill him, how they might eliminate his influence, 
be rid of his teaching and stop all the things that he's been doing. So these events that we're looking at this morning, they occur right in the middle of this year of opposition, approximately five months before the cross. Jesus is five months away, roughly, from dying on the cross for our sins. And at this point in Jesus's ministry, he becomes very focused on Jerusalem. He's very focused now on Calvary and the cross. And sometimes people can be a bit confused with verses like Matthew 16, 20, which we looked at last week, where Jesus commanded his disciples that they shouldn't tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. And, and people can be confused and they can wonder, why doesn't he want uh, people to know that he's the Christ? Wasn't that the reason that he came? So that, that people would, would come to an understanding that he's a Messiah. Why does he want to keep that secret? Well, what's happening during this period of time, what's happening in this chapter is that Jesus is in this major transition in his ministry. The religious leaders, everyone knows him. Everyone knows what he's taught. They know what he's done. Uh, they know all about him. And they have everything they need in order to place their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And now, since that has been accomplished, his focus now is twofold, right? First, the cross, right? On which he's going to give his life for the sins of the world. And secondly, preparing his disciples for those things, those events that are ahead of them. And Jesus knows that his disciples are very unprepared uh, for these events at this moment in time. So Jesus tells his disciples that things are hard, but they're going to get a lot harder in the days ahead between now and the end of his ministry. And at this point in Jesus's ministry, the disciples, they had their ideas what Jesus uh, came into the world to do. They had their own ideas, what his life and his ministry was going to accomplish. And those ideas were actually very different than what Jesus knew his public ministry would be. In the Old Testament, the laws and the prophets, they seem to paint two different pictures of what the Messiah uh, would do when he came into the world. You know, it's almost like you had two different people when you place those prophecies of the Messiah side by side. To many, you know, it seemed almost contradictory. On one hand, you have the prophecies that the Messiah would come as a conquering king, that he would make Jerusalem and Israel, you know, the center of his rule. He would establish his kingdom, and from there he would rule the world with a rod of iron. But on the other hand, you have prophecies saying that when the Messiah would come into the world, he would be rejected. You know, he'd be rejected by his own people. He'd be physically abused. He would um, ultimately put, be put to death, executed on a cross. And looking at these two seemingly extremes, right? If you were a teacher of the law and the prophets in these days and you wanted to be well-received, you told the people what they wanted to hear. I mean, you preached one version of the Messiah over the other, especially since you were under Roman occupation, I mean, you preach the Messiah is coming, and when he does, he's going to come as a conquering king. Uh, he's going to throw off the Roman rule, and he's going to establish his kingdom of righteousness. And that's what the religious leaders did. They emphasized one aspect of the Messiah while neglecting the other descriptions of the Messiah found in Psalm 16, Psalm 22, uh, Isaiah 52, 53, Daniel chapter 9, and other places. They picked what they wanted to preach based on what they wanted out of the Messiah. And of course, Jesus knew that there would be two comings of the Messiah. He would literally, uh, initially come as a suffering Savior, giving his life for the sins of the world. And then at his second coming, he would come, uh, you know, as the conquering king who would then establish his kingdom of righteousness here on the earth. So the two descriptions found in the Old Testament weren't contradictory at all. 
They just necessitated two comings. And of course, Jesus knew that's what, it was, what he was going to do. But in the minds of his disciples, as well as the rest of the Jewish uh, population, and really, it's all they've been fed their entire spiritual life regarding the Messiah, is just this one picture. You know, he's coming, he's going to come, and he's going to be this conquering hero. And then Jesus comes, and in verse 21, he couldn't be any clearer uh, with his disciples regarding what's ahead. He says, Matthew says, from that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. So this is Jesus's first really clear statement regarding his death. Jesus couldn't be any more black and white in regards to where his ministry is going to end up. He tells his disciples, it's going to happen in Jerusalem. He tells them, you know, he's going to suffer many things. And he tells them by whose hands he's going to suffer these things. He tells them it's going to, he's going to suffer these things by the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And he tells them that he'll be killed. And then he tells them, that the end of all of this is going to culminate with him being raised from the dead. And you have to understand, after a lifetime of indoctrination regarding, um, you know, the favorable things about the Messiah, and then when Jesus lets his disciples know these other things that will shortly take place, it's like a bomb goes off in their heads, right? Not only were they... Uh, the disciples ill-prepared to hear what Jesus was saying would happen to him as the Messiah. They were completely unprepared, uh, totally unprepared uh, for it. Nobody had ever even introduced these things to the disciples, even in small degrees, so that it could grow upon them. Right? So... This, when Jesus reveals this to them, it's just like there's an explosion in their, in their head. And the disciples are probably thinking, what? I mean, this is going to end. How? Did I, did I hear him right? How in the world could this ever happen? And then Peter steps in, and Peter's confused beyond all measure. And uh, he begins to rebuke Jesus for the thought of it. Verse 22, then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Now, a lot of people think that Peter uh, rebukes Jesus here because he's lifted up in pride as a result of the conversation we looked at last week when Peter confessed Jesus to be the Christ the son of the living God. And in response to Peter's confession, you remember Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood had not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And as Jesus continues to elaborate regarding Peter's confession, many people think that that was a source of pride in Peter's heart. And now he's going to boss around Jesus, if you will. Well, I don't really know. I mean, maybe that's true. I don't know. But I'm more inclined to think in Peter's mind, when he, when he heard Jesus say this, something just snaps in Peter's head. And I think Peter, for Peter, the idea of something like what Jesus is going to say uh, is going to happen to him, the suffering and the dying in Jerusalem, I mean, it's just inconceivable to him. And you have to give Peter credit, though. He's very troubled about what he's just heard, and he doesn't want to embarrass Jesus. So he takes Jesus aside, you know, away from the other disciples so he can lay some reality on Jesus, right? And one lesson here that's worth learning. We'll just take a minute. If you ever feel the need to straighten Jesus out on any matter, right? Uh, you might want to think twice about it. If you ever feel the need to rebuke Jesus, you need to know that you're wrong. I mean, that's just a lesson in life. And it might be something you want to write down in the margin of your Bible right here. You know, anytime you think he's wrong, 
or that he's not living up to your expectations, you're so wrong, you don't even know how wrong you are, right? Uh, When you feel like you're so right, you need to rebuke him, right? Uh, it's It's not the case. You're wrong. And again, don't say, don't get mad at the messenger. That's just the truth. That's just the way it is. So Peter's very polite towards Jesus here. He's uh, not going to rebuke him publicly. So he takes Jesus maybe by the elbow. Maybe he takes him by the hand. He leads him into a little bit more of a private setting, someplace away from the other uh, disciples. And Peter begins to rebuke Jesus. In essence, what Peter says to Jesus is, this must not happen to you. This cannot happen to you. We have to, you have to uh, avoid this happening to you at all costs. Now, Peter's rebuke is ill-advised because Jesus came into the world to die on the cross for our sins. And what Peter is basically uh, communicating to Jesus is, It's okay to ignore God's will for your life whenever God's will involves suffering. It's okay to elevate our own will above God's will uh, when God's will involves hardship in our life or if it has the potential of endangering us in some way physically. It's okay to elevate our own comfort our self-will, our personal happiness above everything else in our lives, even above God's plans and purposes for our lives in this world. Your comfort, your ease, your self-preservation is the most important thing in this world, even more important than God's plan for your life, right? Even more important than the spiritual well-being and salvation of others. And as we're going to see, every single person that speaks that type of message to a Christian who finds himself in the middle of suffering and extreme hardship uh, for their obedience to God's word, for their obedience to his calling upon their life, it's speaking a temptation into that Christian's life, which is straight from the devil himself. They're being used by the devil at that point just at the worst time possible. When a person is at their most vulnerable, their most fragile state. It's a temptation straight from the devil saying to uh, that person, when it gets hard, you know what? Just check out. God's okay with it. You know, and that's what Peter's saying here. And he's a voice for the devil right now, a He's tempting Jesus, right? And it's very, very dangerous. It's very dangerous to come alongside a person who's in a difficult place and tell them hardship is a legitimate excuse to jettison God's will for their lives in order to avoid difficulty, in order to go back to a selfish, self-centered life that you had before. What do you think would happen if every single Christian stopped obeying God's life, uh, God's word, in terms of how it applies to their life. And two, stop serving the Lord every time it got hard. How many people would be out there serving the Lord? How many missionaries would there be in the world taking the gospel where it's never been before? Hey, how many people would be serving the children's ministry in our church or in any church for that matter, right? How many of you would be sharing the gospel with your unsaved friends and family, you know, um, if we were to stop doing it because it makes us feel awkward, because it's difficult, you know? Or if we knew the result uh, in sharing the gospel would be that somebody's going to call you a name, or maybe you're going to lose that person as a friend if you share the gospel for him. You know what? Nobody would be serving the Lord. Nobody would be sharing the gospel, right? Listen, there's hardship involved in simply being an obedient Christian. Obeying what God's word says in every area, in every situation of our life, it doesn't always work out the way we want it to work out. 
It doesn't always look like the way we want it to look like. Hardship is just a reality of being a Christian. You're not going to escape that fact because God calls us to do hard things. I can tell you as a missionary for 15 years, God calls missionaries to leave home, to leave their family, to leave familial things. And it's a great sacrifice. You know, it's a hard thing to leave the comfort and the familiarity of your hometown, that hometown that you grew up in. And then to travel and plant roots in another culture that's totally unfamiliar. And in many cases, uh, presents a physical danger to the missionary. It's a hard thing. And sometimes we have the wrong view of serving the Lord. Often we think, you know, that's the missionary's job. That's the pastor's job. That's, that's for the elders, the deacons, you know. They're the ones that are to serve the Lord. But we're all called to serve the Lord as Christians. Wherever God has placed you, and you know where he's put you, you know, on that job site, working at that shop, in that classroom, God has placed you there by his design so that, you know, you would serve him there, so that you would live a life as a Christian and live a life of faith in that place so that you would be a witness to everyone that comes across your path so they can get a little glimpse of what the kingdom of heaven looks like by watching you and by talking to you. It doesn't matter who you are. Every one of us will come to a place of difficulty in our calling, right? Where we'll think to ourselves, you know, they can't pay me enough to keep going. You know, I don't want it. I don't like it. I don't need the aggravation. It doesn't seem to be working. You know, I'm just going to walk away from the whole mess. But the thing that keeps you from walking away is obedience. Obedience to God's will for your life. Even uh, when it means hardship and continuing to serve him in that environment. And I think, you know, a very common example of God's call on a person's life to be faithful in a difficult situation is, you know, in, in, in a difficult marriage. I mean, people will come to you and say, if you're in a difficult marriage, and I can't believe you haven't left them yet. It's so one-sided. You know, you do all the giving. They do all the taking. You know, you're wasting your time on that one person. They're never going to change. God will understand if you leave them. God doesn't want you to stay in a marriage like that. Look how many other Christians have left their difficult marriages, and it's worked out for them. God wants you to be happy. You know what? The kids will get over it. You know, your happiness and comfort and comfort is the most important thing, right? It's not like Chris, your Christian witness is going to be damaged all that much. You know, I've heard it all. And we all face similar temptations. I mean, they may come in a different context, but we all face similar temptations to just give up, pack it in when it gets hard. And Jesus, accept, if Jesus accepted Peter's counsel here, you know what? There'd be no hope of forgiveness of our sins in this world. That's how ill-advised this recommendation is to get out. Think of yourself. You know, think about, you know, what's going to make you happy. Save yourself the heartache and the hassle. There would be no salvation in the world if that kind of counsel was heeded. Notice Jesus' private response to Peter. He's going to speak to all the disciples in verse 24. But in verse 23, he's speaking to Peter alone. He says, it says that he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You know what? I never want to hear that from God. <laughs> you know what? I'm not smarter than Peter. I'm certainly no better than Peter. Honestly, I'm as clumsy as Peter is, probably a lot more. You know, I've been rebuked by God many times, more, more times than I care to admit. But to hear this from God, I mean, this must have just devastated Peter. This is a very, very strong rebuke from a loving Savior to one of his disciples. It's not like, that, it's not like Peter was being indwelt 
by uh, the devil at this moment, that the devil was, you know, taking control of his life. You know, it's nothing like that. What Jesus is saying is he recognizes what Peter has said, that it has its origins in the devil. What Jesus is saying is that that type of advice, I mean, it comes from the devil. Jesus, at the very beginning of his public ministry, you'll remember when he was baptized in the Jordan River, and then later the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness where he fasted 40 days, right? The devil came and tempted him. And one of the temptations the devil tempted Jesus with was he showed him all the the kingdoms of the world. And the devil offered them to Jesus. The devil said, you know what? They're all mine. They're mine. I can give them to whoever I wish, and I'll give them to you. They're, they're what you came into the world for, right? So I tell you what, you know, I'll give them to you and you won't have to go to the cross. The temptation was for Jesus to take control of his own life in order to avoid suffering. Even if that meant disobeying the father's will for his life. And Jesus's answer to the devil there in Luke 4 is the same thing he says to Peter here. Get behind me, Satan. Jesus continues to say to Peter, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. This is a temptation that Satan brings to each one of us, especially during those times of difficulties, during those times of hardships in our lives and, uh, you know, uh, difficult times of service to God, when it really costs us something to be true to that call and be obedient to his word. Again, the temptation the devil brings is to elevate yourself, to elevate your own self-will, to elevate your own desires, to elevate your comfort over and above God's purpose and will for your life. Look at all your friends out there, the devil will say. Look at all your family out there, you know? Those people that aren't walking with the Lord, look how easy they have it. You know what? Why are you killing yourself? Look at the people in the world. They don't struggle like you're struggling. I mean, in fact, there are hardly any Christians that are trying to walk with the Lord the way you're walking. And they got it easy. You know what? They're going to heaven too. You know, loosen up a little. Why don't you, you know, uh, just... Forget about God for a minute. Forget about heaven for a minute. No, quit being so serious. I mean, really, why can't you just be like everyone else? Right? This is the advice of the devil. This is the advice of the world to us as Christians. What do you do? Jesus demonstrates that as a Christian, our decision-making Uh, is to never be dominated by ourselves or what the world is doing. Our decision-making needs to be completely dominated uh, by God. And the interesting thing about Peter and all of this, and it's a very uh, powerful point you need to see, Peter is well-meaning. I mean, he doesn't have any ill intentions in offering this advice to Jesus, but he's as wrong as wrong can be. A person can be very, very genuine and well-meaning and be absolutely wrong at the same time and be completely deserving of just as stiff of a rebuke as Peter receives right here in Matthew 16. When we're in a difficult place in our Christian life, when we're facing hardship in the midst of our service to the Lord, We have to be on special guard, especially uh, of those that care for us, that care about us, right? That love us the most in a physical sense, right? Uh, When they look at us, you know, they're well-meaning. They can't can't stand to see us in pain. They can't stand to see us suffering. And they, they very easily can become an instrument of the enemy at that time. You know, they'll say anything they think you need to hear that you'll get out of what obedience to God has put you in the middle of, right? They'll even suggest to you that you can elevate yourself 
uh, elevate self-will, even if it means that that will take you out of the will of God. And that spells disaster for every Christian, right? The will of God can be hard. Listen, the will of God can be hard, but there's something that's far harder than the will of God. And that's being outside of the will of God and going, going on it, uh, going on your own, right? When people come to you, when Christians come to other Christians, and when they know that they're saying uh, something that's in direct contradiction to the word of God, and they say, just do it anyway. You know what? God will forgive you. You know, just do your thing a year or two. You know, you can always come back to God. He'll always take you back. Those people have no idea the danger they're tempting those, those Christians that are struggling with. I mean, that person may not have those margins in life. That person may be walking day by day, only surviving because they are taking everything to the Lord in prayer because the hardships are so hard in that person's life. It forces them to cling to Jesus Christ minute by minute. Now, now I'm going to come and encourage that Christian. Hey, take a break. Take a month off. Take two off. You know what? People have no idea how disastrous it can be when they offer that type of advice to a Christian who's in a difficult place. As someone who's been involved in ministry for a lot of years now, I can tell you how, how common it is for Christians to tell other Christians that kind of thing. I mean, it's a very, very rare Christian, in my experience, who tells another Christian who's enduring hardship for being obedient to God's word, for being faithful to God's call upon their life. It's a very rare Christian who exhorts and rebukes and encourages them to stay faithful to God's call on their life, no matter what the cost. You know, I'd say it's probably not more than one in 10, probably less than that. And that's exactly what's needed in that situation. Jesus declares to Peter, he says, you're, in a you're a, an offense to me. You're a stumbling block to me. And that's what the word offense uh, means in the Greek. Peter, do you think you're helping me? You're, you're actually a stumbling block to me right now. You're a rock this big rock in the path of God's will for my life right now. And you're not helping me out any at all right now. And we're not helping anyone else out when we give them similar advice. You know, it's too hard. It's too difficult. You're saved. You're going to heaven. You know, you don't have to go through this. God understands. He'll forgive you. You know, we should always encourage Christians to continue to be faithful to God's word, to be faithful to God's calling on their lives, no matter what the cost. Now, it's not a total loss. Jesus uses this opportunity in verse 24 to address all the disciples regarding uh, what it will cost them to, to follow him. Verse 24, and then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, now, don't shout out, don't raise your hands, okay? But how many of you want to come after Jesus and follow him in this life? You know, what if Jesus sat you down? You're saved, you're born again, you're born of the Holy Spirit, you know? And now you're being built upon the solid rock, you know, your life is being uh, built upon that foundation. And this wonderful life of walking with Jesus is ahead of you. And you say, I want to follow you, Lord. You know, I want to live for you, Jesus, harder than I lived for the world, harder than I lived for the devil and for my flesh. What's it going to take to live the life that is pleasing to you? What's it going to take to go where you would go in this world? What's it going to take to live the life that you desire me to live? That's what I, I want in my life. And I'm pretty confident that's what you guys want in your life. Uh, those that I know, and I'm sure that's for most of you that I don't know, right? And we say, yes, that's the life that, that I want to live. What's it going to take, Lord? What's it look like? And what Jesus is doing here in verse 24 
is he's setting his disciples down and he's telling them and he's telling us today, if that's what you want, it's going to take three things, right? If that's the life that you're desiring to live, how valuable is this input from Jesus right now, right? Jesus is saying, you want to live that life? You want to go where I go and do the things I do? Live a life that looks like me in this fallen world? Well, this is what it's going to take. One, he says, the denial of self. Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. You know, it will require that I deliberately and purposely refuse to elevate my own self-will above the word of God, the will of God, and the call of God for my life. It's a moment-by-moment decision to say no to self and to say yes to God. It's developing a lifestyle by the power of the Holy Spirit and saying no to anything that contradicts God's word. Anything that causes me, that would cause me to abandon God's plan for my life because of hardship, because of the suffering that's required. And then saying yes to anything that God's word demands of me or that God's will and plan for my life demands of me, regardless of the self-denial that's required. It's making the will of God the single most important thing in my life. This is the conscious decision that every Christian needs to come to in their life, right? Some people come to that decision as soon as they get saved. You know, others, it takes a little longer, but we all have to come to the place where we say to ourselves, I'm sick of this self-dominated life. I recognize that, you know, I'm the single greatest enemy to me progressing in my walk with Jesus Christ. I don't want to live my life anymore, half for God and half for myself. I want to surrender myself fully to the demands of the Christian life. And I choose by God's grace to live that life regardless of what it may cost me. Each of us needs to come to that point where we settle the issue of Jesus's lordship in our life. Apostle Paul did it. He said in Galatians 2.20, he said, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What Paul is saying in that verse, he says, my life now is all about God. Listen, if you're going to live, if we're going to live our lives for the glory of God, then we're going to have to get very good at telling ourselves no. And the reason this is important for us, uh, you know, the reason for it's important for the Christian is because where selfishness will lead me, you know, the path that my selfish heart wants to take me down and where Jesus wants to lead me in life and the path that he wants to take me down. You know what? Those are two completely different paths. And there are two completely different qualities of life. And each of us have to decide, the earlier the better, which road we're going to travel down. Secondly, notice that Jesus says in verse 24 that we are to take up our cross. And this is in regards to the degree to which we are to practice self-denial. Jesus declares that we are to remain obedient to his word, obedient to the call of God upon our life, even to the point of death. And that's what the cross represented to the people in those days. Now you might think, well, Gare, that that sounds a little fanatical. And you know what? It does sound fanatical to the average person. And it does sound fanatical to the carnal Christian. But Jesus, without apology, and it's printed in every Bible that's printed, says up front, 
If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Those are the terms of the deal. That's the level of commitment that Jesus calls not extraordinary Christians to. No, he calls every single Christian, every single one of us to that, right? That I would be willing to die instead of disobeying his word, instead of abandoning him, abandoning his call upon my life. Jesus wasn't a do as I say and not as I do kind of teacher. I mean, he did exactly what it is that he's called us to do, utilizing the same tools that we have. That's the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit alive within us. Jesus, the son of God, right? He wasn't a sinner like me. He was the son of God. And in the will of the father, he went to the cross and died for my sins, for your sins too. All but one of the apostles ended up dying a violent martyr's death right in the middle of God's will for their life. The sacrifice of Jesus and the sacrifice of the apostles and others who didn't love their lives to death reaches right into this room this morning. I mean, God used the apostles through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write the New Testament, you know, and we turn to it every day to gain strength and instruction and direction and encouragement from God in our lives. People look at it and say, man, that's a waste of time reading the Bible. Oh my goodness. I know a guy said, you shouldn't read the Bible. It was written by Shakespeare. Nobody can understand it. You know, all the these and thous but I don't know where I'd be without the word of God, you know, to lead me and to guide me through this life. I don't know where I'd be without the gospels, the record of Jesus's life and teaching in this world. And I don't know where I'd be without the, the epistles and the apostles doctrine. You know, I need the word of God on a daily basis to provide perspective in this insane asylum called planet earth, you know? It's not just the call of the apostles. This call is not just unique to the first century. It's a call for this century. It's a call for this hour in history. Like the apostles, we have a call upon, of God upon our lives to stay faithful to God so that generations after us are influenced for good and for God as our influence outlives our lives. Jesus didn't make it a secret that the denial of self to the degree of death is necessary, is required if we're to follow him. And thirdly, Jesus said we are to follow him. And the word follow is in the present tense uh, in the Greek. So what it means is that we're to continue following him. You know, the obvious meaning in this passage is that Peter was not following Jesus right now at this point. When you take Jesus aside and you rebuke him, I think it's safe to say that that looks more like leaving than following Jesus. Clearly, we're not to leave or rebuke God, but it's not just talking about getting our roles right with God, that he's to lead and we're to follow. It speaks of a personal relationship with Jesus, staying close to him on a daily basis. And I think it's important. It's a, it's, a, it's a key to longevity in this Christian life. For an obedient Christian life, it's absolutely vital. Probably the most vital thing of all in, in remaining faithful to God's call in, uh, upon our lives, our personal relationship with Jesus Christ needs to mean more in our lives, more than anything else in the world, more than anything the world could offer us, right? There can be nothing offered to us that would make us even consider for a moment walking away from a relationship with Jesus Christ. Our relationship with Jesus has to have that kind of value to us, right? I don't know where you, where, where you were when Jesus saved you, 
You know, if it weren't for Jesus in my life, I tell you, I mean, you wouldn't recognize me, right? Our daily relationship with Jesus as a result of what he's done for us in our lives has to be, needs to be so valuable, so precious, so daily, so rich, so personal. As God is your witness, you would never trade it for anything. You would never leave him. That's the kind of relationship God calls us to with Jesus Christ. And that's the key of being faithful to him and following him in this world. You know, we need to have that kind of depth and beauty of relationship. We need to be willing to live in a broken down old shack in the worst part of the world, right? Enjoying intimacy with him, hearing from him, going to sleep every night, knowing you're right in the middle of God's will. That's worth more than living in the most beautiful mansion, overlooking the most beautiful beach. You know, not having intimacy with God, being outside of the will of God for your life. I mean, not being able to say, Lord, and being instantly in communion with him. I mean, living the life that Christ has for us, that's what true riches is in this life. Not the geographical location to where we live or the things that we possess. You know, being a child of God, in communion with him, in the middle of his will for our lives. That's priceless. Our relationship with God needs to have that kind of value placed on it. A person that comes after Jesus Christ must make that relationship with him the most important and most influential relationship in their lives. And Jesus says, that's, that's, The only way, there is no other way. It's saying no to self and yes to God, moment by moment, day by day, right? Decision by decision. It's doing that no matter how great the sacrifice may be, you know, even if it means death. And it means living close to Jesus on a basis of life. These are the things that Jesus is talking about. And these are hard things. I mean, these are very great demands. Thankfully, he gives us the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, right, in order to do these things. And Jesus knows, Jesus knows that he's, he's saying hard things uh, to his disciples here. So he adds three simple things to help them maintain perspective in the middle of all this. First, verse 25. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In other words, what Jesus is saying, as hard as this life may sound to you, there's no better life that can be lived in this world. There's nothing that compares to it, right? Everything else compared to this life is meaningless. There's no lasting satisfaction in any other life. If you jump out of God's will for your life in order to escape hardship, you'll miss out on what life is all about. Life is all about a faithful, a faithful, obedient, personal relationship with God, serving him and being part of his plan for the world. Apart from those things, people are just going through the motions lost, never knowing what life is really all about. We must, as Christians, we must never go back to the world. We must never, ever move away from God's will simply because it's hard for a season. To do that is to doom yourself to a meaningless existence. And you know what? You were made for more than that. And you won't do very well in that either. You were made for greater things. You were made to make a difference in this world. You have the spirit of the living God in your life and in your heart, right? Jesus is worth any and all sacrifices and we, uh, that we may make in this life 
in order to follow him. Secondly, verse 26, Jesus says, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Here, Jesus is warning us not to leave God's will for our life in order to gain material things. I mean, hey, look at those people that aren't following the Lord. Look at all that they have. I mean, all those dune buggies and motorcycles and boats and houses and cars. I mean, you're missing out being a Christian. You know what? Very often in the scriptures, the word soul, it's referring to the eternal part of us. But when Jesus uses the word soul here in verse 26, he's speaking of a person's life and the deeper things in the life of an unsaved and saved person. In other words, to lose the soul is to miss the purpose for which we were created. And Jesus is declaring, you can take all the things of the world and pile them up right here. And all of that is not worth missing out on a life of obedience and a life of service to God. And anyone willing to leave the will of God in order to enrich themselves materially doesn't understand the value of life. The real value of life is knowing God, serving God, knowing that you're making a difference in this world, making a difference for eternity, living the kind of life that Jesus said that we're to live makes us richer than the richest person in the whole world, even if that person owned the whole world. Third, and finally, verse 27, Jesus says, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and they will reward, and he will reward each according to his works. Jesus is encouraging his disciples, as well as us today, at the end of a life of sacrifice and hardship that you may incur in order to live for him and serve him, Jesus says, hey, there's a reward for that kind of life. Jesus has spoken of all the demands and he's spoken of all the hardship and he says, there's a reward for all of that. And you need to notice who's gonna deliver that reward. For the son of man will come in the glory of his fathers with his angels and then he will reward. You know what? I'm gonna look Jesus right in the eyes. I'm going to see the color of his eyes. I'm going to see a smile on his face. And he personally is going to go to every single individual who chooses this life. And he's going to give them an eternal reward for doing it. You know, the crazy thing is just that alone is reward in itself. That alone makes a life serving the Lord worthwhile. This is very important for us to remember in order to maintain any kind of perspective in terms of how our life is to be spent. If a life is to be profitable in any way, we have to extend our lives out beyond ourselves. We have to ask ourselves, you know, um, the way I'm spending my life right now, the way I'm using my discretionary time, the things that I'm engaged in during my free time, you know, what will, they ma- what will they mean in a hundred years, right? Do they have any difference in the kingdom of God and the advancement of the kingdom of God? Jesus said, Matthew 6, 19 through 21, he said, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Paul said in Colossians 3, 1 through 3, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So, What's the point? 
The point is, don't miss a life of obedience in God's will, a life of faithfulness to his calling. No matter how hard it gets, no matter what sacrifices are demanded of you, because it's still the greatest life a person can live. You know what? If all we face in life as a Christian is difficulty and hardship and persecution, and heaven is all we got out of it, worth it, <laughs> worth it. The devil as well as others, even well-meaning but misguided Christians will come at times. And we have to be on guard, especially during times of hardship, because they'll tempt us to move outside the will of God for our lives. Don't listen to them. Don't give in to the temptation. Recognize the origin of that kind of advice. Deny yourself. Learn to say no to yourself. Say yes to God, situation by situation, obeying his call on your life. Take up your cross. That's the degree to which we're to do this, even to the point of death. And then follow after Jesus, making that relationship with him the most important, most influential thing in our lives. That's how we come after Jesus. You know what? 50, 56 minutes I've gone now. 56 minutes. Thank you for your patience. You know what? You've listened to me. Don't shout out. But how does this hit you? How does it hit you? You know, how many Christians do you know live a life like this? Through thick and thin, through the years, through the decades. How many? Bigger question. Do you live a life like this? Does this represent the life and commitment you have with God? Because if it doesn't represent the life we're living, then we're not following Jesus, right? I'm not going where he's going. I'm not doing the things he's doing. I'm not saying the things he's saying. Look at the culture we live in. You know what? It's everything Jesus is warning us about. The world will tell you, wait until you get a little nasty. You know what? When you're ready to retire, then you can serve Jesus like this. You know, the worship of self in this culture, the elevation of my happiness as the most important thing, my pleasure, my comfort. It's all about me. Things being easy as a measurement of God's will for my life. You know, we don't even realize how strong the culture is. Not only... Is it attempting to fashion us? Our culture is fashioning the Bible right before our eyes. You know, not literally, of course, but people's understanding of the Bible. Even in many so-called Christian churches today, they teach, live for yourself, live for material things. I mean, the prosperity doctrine is an excuse for covetousness. You know what? Make other relationships more important. And then if you have anything left over, then, you know, then with that, you can live for God. Come to church once in a while when it fits into your schedule. Get some heaven dust sprinkled on you. Obey him. You know what? When it's easy for you, you're going to heaven. It's a free gift, right? It's the fashioning of the church and the culture today. And you know what? I see it. If you're paying attention, you see it all the time. God gets the leftovers. He gets obeyed when it's convenient. Any sacrifice involved, forget it, I'm out. You know what? I don't want anyone to feel condemned this morning. Conviction's okay though, conviction's okay. But think about it. How many people are serving the Lord in the way that Jesus is speaking of here? You know, is there something else fashioning us? Jesus hasn't changed his mind about these things. This is not Jesus calling again extraordinary Christians to this life. This is to be the norm for every Christian in this room, in this town, in this world. This is to be the norm. And Jesus tells us these things so that we'll not be self-deceived thinking we're with, that we're walking with God the way he wants us to, when we're not. Jesus gives us the standard. If you live this kind of life, it's not just the world that will say you're crazy. Other Christians 
will say it too. Other Christians will think you're crazy if they don't say it. But it's God's heart for every single one of us who calls himself a Christian. This is a life that Jesus calls us to in order to come after him. Let's pray. Father, your word is sharper and more powerful than a two-edged sword. It's true. Lord, we want to recognize this is the call of our lives. This is what you saved us for. You gave your life and purchased mine that I might live for you, be pleasing to you, bring glory to you. Lord, I owe you my life. We owe you our life. Move in our hearts, Lord. Bring correction where correction is needed. Bring rebuke where rebuke is needed. Bring exhortation where exhortation is needed. God, cleanse us from compromise. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Use us for your kingdom. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.